Well, we're in the last week of a series titled the book of First and Second Peter. Really, they're just letters. Peter wrote two different letters to the church. It doesn't mean there's Pete and repeat. It is one Peter. He writes several letters. And so we're in the second letter of that. We're at the conclusion of it. And uniquely for me this week, as I was preparing, I was in a different environment. In fact, you may not know, but this last week, I spent the week in Budapest. Uh, in fact, I flew back in late last night. And so I do want to tell you as a caveat, if I say something that doesn't make sense or seems odd, I attribute that to jet lag. Not to me, so that's my, my dis- disclaimer. I was with our, our missionaries from Europe in our own movement. Uh, I actually, earlier this summer, I was in Bangkok with our missionaries from Asia, and, and I have to tell you, it's one of those things where we, I wanna be able to come back and tell you all the great things I hear. Because when I go to both of these places, when I'm a part of the movement that you're all a part of and supporting, almost what I hear all week is thank you. Like they're so grateful, and you don't realize it, but the anchor that many of you provide by staying connected, by giving, by encouraging these missionaries on these different fields is a lifeblood for them. And so even the fact that you help and allow me to go to do these things, this year both both conferences, they have a conference for these different groups, were very focused, specifically focused on kind of building their inner spiritual lives. So I had an opportunity to teach and engage that but I just want you to know how grateful they are and how grateful I am. And you may even recognize some of these people. I don't know how well you can see them, but this is Dave and Dina Horn. Dave is our European director. Dennis Jackson, our former pastor, is the head of all of Global Partners. Mike was actually on our staff years ago and uh, serves at GP and also helped plant Watermark. Uh, Luke and Kyla, uh, right here, Paravente, residents, were residents with us. I am sure I'm missing someone, but those are just ones you would know just from being here. But I'll tell you what hit me even more when I was with them. I'm going back to my room to kind of prepare for this message. And these letters that Peter writes, he writes to the church scattered throughout all of of what was then Asia Minor. And as I'm with these people, I'm thinking they are all in cities by themselves, many of them, trying to reach a group where there's very little, if any, Christian influence. And so his letter kind of jumped at me a little bit more than it usually does just thinking about that, that we're recipients of it too, that, you know, back in the ancient world, you didn't have Zoom meetings, you didn't have podcasts, you didn't have any other way of communicating, but these letters have become something that God inspired and said, you know what, I want the church always to have these. So with that, we're finishing up the final letter today and looking at this, and, uh, and I do want to say one more thing just as I look at the missionaries to remind you of this, because it's something I hear regularly from these leaders and other leaders in our movement churches can have tendencies like some churches will say we're just about reaching people that are lost and far from God and so that becomes the sole focus especially in their own community churches say we're about discipleship we just want to grow people up in what that is and then there's some churches that go we need to reach the world so we're going to do those things but very rarely do churches care about all of that and one of the things I regularly hear back from other leaders is how grateful they are that you folks care about all of that and so I, I want to simply cheer you on even as we get into the letter, that I'm grateful to be part of a church that I just get to share in the legacy of this. And these folks are representative of that gratitude. We take up the last chapter of Second Peter. Dear friends, he says, it's now my second letter that I write to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and have us realize, because we spent the whole summer studying these two letters, that Peter's intention, and ours as well, is to help us be changed and inspired on how we think. How we think about the church, 
how we think about the world, how we think about what we do and who we are and what we're a part of, God's coming and his returning. That's what Peter has been talking about through all of this. And so in the same way today, I hope this will stimulate your thinking that you might consider things differently. Then he goes on, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, which would be what we know as the Old Testament, those places that the prophets spoke to us and it was God speaking through them and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, I wanna remind you, just as we're in this part, that what we talked about, particularly in the second letter, was Peter was clarifying what's truly what Jesus had said and who he is, what's it mean that he came and he'll come again, and that there's these false prophets, places that we don't think about it the same way, but places where culture and other messages confuse the truth. And so Peter's writing this to remind us and renew us in it, and then he's gonna continue on concerns and things he wants us to know. Above all, I want you to get this really significantly, you must understand that in the last days, which, by the way, Scripture defines the last days as once Jesus came. It's not a short time. It's, in fact, when Peter cites a prophecy from Joel, he says, in the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy, there'll be visions, and then he says we're in that time. So I just want you to understand we're all in that. We'll come back to it. He says, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires, evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since it has at the beginning of creation. Now, in a sense, what Peter's cautioning is, because Jesus' return, which we all understand will happen, is taking so long, people treat it as if he's never coming back. In other words, we just live as we do, and we don't see any consequence to how we live. I like to think of it this way. It's like a teenager. Uh, and, and Well, let me ask this question. How many of you, did your parents go away and let you stay home alone when you were growing up? Any of you? A fair amount of you. Hold your hands up. Keep them up. Keep your hand up if you didn't behave in a way that they necessarily desired while they were gone. Good, most of you. That's what I thought. And I was the same way. My parents gave me a lot of freedom when I was growing up, and I had a lot of times being home alone, and it wasn't like the movie. Um, what was interesting was that I was given some very specific guidelines on how I was to live, and it was to live as they would always want me to live, and in a way that honors who they are and who we are as a family. Now, what I chose to do was live in a way I would enjoy, assuming I can do that, they will think I lived the way they wanted, and right before they come back, I'm gonna clean up so it looks as if I actually agree with what they want. Does that make sense? A lot of head nods. Apparently, others of you have that same strategy. By the way, I'm not highly recommending that strategy. I'm actually gonna shoot that down in a second, but I wanna compare it because I think in our Christian lives, we do the same thing. We love what Jesus teaches. We will even talk about the fact that he speaks of his return, but we live as if he's never coming back. And maybe later in life or some other time, we'll adjust to do what we think he wanted. And hopefully he'll just figure it wasn't that big a deal because the reality is we don't see it affecting anything, do we? I mean, if we look at it in reality, we would say, you know what? When he says everything goes on as it has been from the beginning of creation, would we agree that's true, it happens? Would we say maybe that's possible that we perceive it that way? Peter's drawing, by the way, on prophets, these Old Testament people that are speaking into culture back then. I'll just give you one, this is Malachi. And he's drawing off of this, for example. Malachi says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. And how have we wearied him? Is kind of the response he gives in his mind to them. 
Hey, you say, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? In other words, it doesn't seem to matter how we live. Certain people have it better than others, and it just works that way. God either doesn't care or it doesn't matter. Now, can you see how we live that way today in general? I I hope you can, because I think we very commonly do it. I don't think we speak much about how people live or how we live, and even the fact that if we don't really consider the long look of this, and if Jesus particularly doesn't seem to be coming back soon, it's like, I'll worry about it later. I'll clean up before dad shows up. But how I live right now doesn't seem to matter. Why can't I just enjoy it? And in fact, I think these words are profound. We actually see sometimes things that are evil and just think they're good. Now, by the way, I realize this is not a fun thing to tell you, but man, I think it's important. And make no mistake, I find myself as much subjected to it. I'm not speaking this to the outside like, I see things properly, and I'm gonna tell you how you don't. I think we're all influenced and struggle with the fact that we've dismissed the very return of Christ, the very call of how we're to live and how he's to change things. And that's what Peter's cautioning. And he's saying, when you cling to the things that really matter, this should rock you a bit. So he's gonna go further into this now and try to give us a bigger picture. He's gonna go back to the the beginning and he's gonna look to the end. We call it eschatology, what the end will look like. And he uses two elemental forces to talk about this. Uh, he begins with water. And he speaks of the fact that water through it, water comes, and he uses two times for water, which we get that in the creation narrative. There's the water in the heavens and the water below, and out of it, everything comes. And so there's kind of this idea that in the beginning, God made us all, and water's a big elemental piece of that. But then he speaks of what appears to be the flood with Noah, and he says this about what water also brings. It deluged and it destroyed. Now, we can tend to just think of it as God wipes out, which is part of this, the idea that God does, does bring destruction and bring this. But if you look at the narrative about Noah, it's a picture that water is made to purge from us the things that are ungodly. So I want you not just to see in the beginning God did this and in the beginning there was judgment, but God also uses those things to help us become more like him. And then he's going to use the very same picture for the end of time because he begins to talk about fire. He talks about fire burning up. There are, I didn't want to get into all of this because there were discrepancies of how the, this particular word for destruction was used. And, and it's just too nuanced for us to deal with in this text, although it, it's worth talking about at some point. But I want us to look at fire from the sense of burning up. And he does speak about this with judgment. In fact, the words he used to describe this, there's a destruction of the ungodly. But it's also a picture, just like with water, of refining. That one way of understanding this would be that the fire comes to destroy that which was not of God. Think of it in the fact that when metals go through the fire, they burn away that which is ungodly and unholy. So the picture overall Peter is giving is not just one of God came and God will return and there will be judgment, though that is a picture of it. It's also that God wants to refine and change and move. And when we live kind of considering, we just live however we want, and it doesn't matter, and even those things that we might say are evil seem to be good because they're all benefit, and how many of us go, if it goes well, it must be good? And yet that's not true at all biblically. 
So Peter's going, I, I want you to think properly about that. I want to awaken and stimulate your thinking. I want you to think of the whole thing differently, and especially as we're nearing the end and what that means. And now he's going to move into a detail of where he's going with this. And to get it started, he makes this statement, do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Now, there are some who use this passage specifically to try to be very detailed about time. So if a day is like a thousand years, it means this will be a thousand years. And, and I'm just telling you, at least from my perspective on this, in general, the biblical mindset is what does the image mean? What does the number mean? Not what's the quantity of it? And so if you think about what the image means, it's saying that in God, time is different than it is for us. So, so let me give you an example. If you're an Israelite and you lived anywhere in the 400 years that they were in slavery to Egypt, do you think it ever felt like God was going to move? Would you not feel forgotten? You realize 400 years is 10 generations. So if you were at the beginning, that means you're great, 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 and maybe one more great, we're close. That many generations would not know anything differently. Do you think if you're in that, you might think he'd never show up? I would. Is it possible for us the same way that we've just dismissed the return of Christ? And we talked about this earlier in the series, but I want to get your minds back in this, that Peter's trying to remind us, listen, God looks at time differently. But what I love is what follows. And it's a verse that's often quoted, but not in this context. And we just missed the whole picture of it. This is what he says about how God views time and God's heart behind it. With all that judgment, he says, God's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He instead is patient with you. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I don't want to make a case for this universalistic picture that God's going to have everybody there, but I want you to get just his heart. Because people argue about that too, and we know there's a lot of constraints that wouldn't put us there either. I just want you to consider patience for a minute. So I don't know if you're like me. I, I do not like patience. I've often been forced to have to deal with it. In my view, if I were honest about patience, it's this. I will suck it up and hold my frustration in the hopes that you'll figure it out and get better. That does not sound like a great disposition about patience, does it? And then when you finally do it, I won't say anything, but in my mind, I'm thinking, man, finally, it took you long enough. You realize that's not what God means by this, right? When Peter uses the word patience, it goes along with words like long-suffering and words like loving-kindness, which what it means is God's character is such that he wants to give us all the time he can to see all the change he can and have all the love and relationship he can. Patience is a beautiful thing in God's heart and mind. What he's telling us right here is the very heart of God. Now, yes, God is going to bring an end, and there is going to be judgment. But holy cow, if you do not get this, that God is incredibly patient and incredibly loving and wanting so much to change, you don't get his heart. In Europe this last week at this conference, uh, each year I, I, there are different themes. One of the things that Dave did with his team this year was each field uh, told a bit about what's going on in their field. So each country did you know, the Czech Republic, Croatia, Albania, all sorts of different, every different country they're in, and there are lots of them. They shared a bit on their field. And there were three particular stories that hit me as I was studying this that didn't, I didn't just look at them and go, that's great for there. They, I felt like they applied to us too, but they impacted me. 
So, so I'll tell you the, the first one. It was a story of a, a group in a country that were in one city and they were having some, and are having some movement where they're beginning to find people follow Christ and the church itself is growing and they're just alongside of it. You know, that's a strategy. It's not the missionaries lead the church. It's they help leaders that are there grow up, become pastors and leaders and they lead the church and they just support them. I mean, the missionaries. Well, there was another city not too far away where a family had come to faith, but no one else was with them. And this couple in the group said, we will move out of the city we love and go over here so we can start being with this new family of faith where the man was going to begin leading a church there as a national. And by the way, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Imagine they were already on the field and they were going to give up again with this effort. So they tell the story where they're coming alongside a pastor that's, that's from this country in a a wife of this other couple comes to faith through the missionary relationship. And the, the wife in the missionary couple begins to infuse this woman into the life of the church, and she begins to come, which, by the way, does not please her husband. He's quite angry about it. But he doesn't like her getting herself to church. I don't remember if she had to take public transportation or get rides. So he agrees he'll take her to church, but he spends the first six months just sitting out so he can't hear anything, but he's there. But in the course of time, he begins to come into the room and begins to hear things. In the course of time, he actually opens himself up, and pretty soon, the missionary, uh, the couple, the, the man and the couple, connects him to the pastor, and the next thing you know, the pastor is discipling him, and the next thing you know, he's following Jesus. So is God patient? Does God long for people to reach out and see how his love is found when people help others? It was beautiful. Had, had a similar story in another country where... Uh, they were working with youth ministry specifically in this country. And in this country, those who would have some kind of organized faith that they would call Christianity, but it's much more uh, a ritualistic and not relational, one of the rules in those who are in any orthodox tradition is no, don't read the Bible. It's dangerous. I know that seems counterintuitive. So their teenager starts going to this youth group, and they start doing Bible study, and the mom is angry. She comes to the leaders, is mad that they're even doing it. But over time, she lets her child go, and over time, she starts to see life change to such a degree that she invites the whole youth group to come to her house and then tells them, wait to have the study till the rest of my kids can be there. Come on, is that not awesome? Is God patient? Does he want to see people come to him? Oh my goodness, he does. But it was the third story that grabbed me, and it wasn't even the story, it was what one of our missionaries said afterwards, it was actually Kyla Paraventi, Kyla and Luke, who were in the Czech Republic. Kyla shared a story, and last year she shared a story that was quite powerful of redemption, but this year she shared a story where she said, I'm, I'm, I'm developing all these friendships with my neighbors, and one of the things in the Czech is they, a bunch of them must like to camp, which is not her deal, but she decided to go camping, this other mom and her with their kids. So they're out camping by a lake, and the kids go out in a shallow part of the water. She's watching all of them. And the other mom says, hey, I need to go out for a little while. So Kyla, oh, no problem, watch them. She said, I don't know how to describe it, but what followed was a plague like in the, in the Egypt, days of Egypt. These bugs descended on the lake and literally covered most of it and covered the kids. And literally her own son, who she knows has a bug phobia anyway, just looked at her and began to shrill. And all of the kids made their way out of the water. The problem was the bugs followed them everywhere and they couldn't go into their tents because if they unzipped them, the bugs would get in the tents. She said, we spent 45 minutes just getting bugs off of people. And by the time it was all done, finally the other mom came back. 
Needless to say, Kyla was not enamored with what had happened or felt like it was a powerful missionary moment. But what she said that followed was what grabbed me. It wasn't like I'm reaching out to the Czech people. She said this, I love my friends in the Czech. I just love these people. They're my friends and the people I love and enjoy. You see, what had happened was she got the heart of God being patient. It's not, I need to give you time so when you have time, it'll happen. It's, I'm being patient and I want you to have my heart, which is very simply this. You need to love urgently. You need to care that this matters and it matters now. And I don't mean that you have this anxiety, like I better hurry and convert them. It's this matters and it matters right now. And I wanna love them so much. I wanna reach them so much. And you, I hope you know this. Do you know the more you love people, the more you want them to have good things happen, right? And I, I think the challenge in this is getting God's heart. It's not God's patience, so get on with it. It's God's patience, and that's his heart. And if you have his heart, you love urgently. L- let me give you the picture from my own life, because I've struggled with this. I, the first church I worked at was highly evangelistic. We would have been called seeker-driven. And it's all we ever talked about. You know, who's a seeker? Who are you reaching out to? But it was kind of, it felt to me like, at least it didn't feel loving, it felt demanding. Like, I'm in trouble if I don't do this. And I started to get a bad attitude, like, oh my goodness, don't, and you do what you do when people overly push something. Well, don't you care about believers? Don't you care about this? Like, you kind of refute the challenge. And where I finally got to was, oh, I don't actually care about people that I'm not like and aren't always committed like I am. And what changed was I just began to pray that God would give me a heart for people around me. And I prayed it for a couple of years. But I felt like my heart started to turn to God's. And it it was just that I loved the friends around me and they were people that didn't know him. And the best thing I had to give him was him. And I wanted to give it to him. And I don't now want to do it because I'm in a hurry. I want it to be urgent because it matters that much to me. And I think what Peter's saying is you get the big picture you know that we love urgently. Not casually, not when it works for us, but God is patient because he deeply wants something to change and he gave it to you and me to get to find people and do it. So I think one of the things Peter leaves us with is we need to love urgently. This needs to matter to us. God's patient so that we can be his people. Now Peter doesn't just leave it there. He continues on. He speaks about this prophecy of the day of the Lord. And this is the idea that God will return and there will be judgment and God will change everything. And he speaks of him as a thief, that he comes in and he speaks of the very destruction of the way things are and that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, this beautiful picture of transformation. But he calls it and he says, you need to long for the speed of it coming. And then when he gives a picture, he gives us another challenge. He says this, So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, to God's actual return, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, that's the purpose of it. Just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, he gets into more nuances with Paul, but this is one of the few times we actually, Peter, see him refer to Paul And where he goes on in all this is he tells us not to get carried away in our own error. So what we know is there's something really important about him talking about us being spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We might call it holiness or being transformed by him. 
And I want to just pause here for a minute because it has occurred to me that we live in a very hard time to siphon out what that means. And and I just want to tell you something as an observer and as a participant. And I want to say it to you this way. I'm going to say a few things, and your temptation is going to be to think of the people that you believe are in error that don't think the way you do and point to them and go, yeah, they need to hear that. But I want you to hear it towards yourself. I'm actually speaking to every one of us and our own tendency to errors. Because when we talk about transformation and holiness, we tend to get in different camps. Some of us, especially those of us who are older, tend to think more about our moral construct, how we behave morally and moralistically, and that God has this standard of living, which he does. I'm not dismissing that that's not true and want us for that. And then we look at everything outside of just our personal conduct and say, that's not what he means. Those people are off. And so we get mad that other people don't see it the way we do, and we tend to judge them for it and just have a very small bucket of what we think holiness means. Now, there's others of us who we, we love the idea and the truth that Jesus loves everyone in every place and sees the dignity of them, but we think of Jesus as all accepting no matter what people do and that he's fine with however we live. And then, then that group looks over at the other and go, man, they are judgmental and closed-minded. Now, now here's the, the hard part for all of us in this is that I think every one of us can get in a place where we not only look with hostility to people outside of our limited way of thinking of holiness, but I think we're kind of like the prophet Jonah, and I'll explain what I mean. Jonah is called of God to go to the city of Nineveh, that's a city in mess, and basically to rebuke them. But Jonah's so mad after he does, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it and doesn't want them to actually get better. He just wants to catch them. And so he's kind of a, a prophet with a bad heart. His whole agenda is just to point out and go, I told you so. So when God actually changes the people and they respond, Jonah's ticked. Are are you getting what I mean by this? Because this is my observation. We have so narrowly banded what we think holiness is, and we all have things that get incorporated into that that aren't from Scripture and aren't of God. For some of us, it's cultural values. For others of us, it's values about power and politics. For others of us, it's different values from our history and our traditions that aren't biblical. That's why Peter keeps saying, man, you better check this because you are incorporating things that aren't. But beyond even what's true and not and what we care about, the part I want to speak to in holiness is just the fact of how we treat each other. Because I would tell you in our differences... I don't see a difference from how the rest of the world treats each other. This is my observation. I should be able to say whatever I want and believe and think, and it should be okay. But if you say anything that violates it, I'm going to get you. Now, is that not weird? I should be accepted and okay. You should not. And the reason I say it and the reason I speak to it today is I think his call is actually a call to live differently. I think that's what he's saying. You need to live differently than the rest of the world. And if we can't do it with each other, how in the world will we ever do it with people outside of us? And I've just never seen a time in my life where we haven't been more fragmented and frustrated with each other. And I wonder if we began to look inside instead of outside, if we wouldn't begin to see change. Just God, help me actually be loving to the people I don't see the same as. Help me to maybe expand my view of what holiness is and what it means to be blameless and help me to actually let go of things I've attached to it that aren't of you. And make no mistake, I think we're all struggling with this. 
I think we've attached things that aren't necessarily biblical. I think we've not attached things that are. And then we've not, not, definitely not attached love to it. And so I didn't want to simply say be holy and grow. I, want, I think living differently means how we live with each other and how we treat each other. I love how he says it here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. In other words, grow in how you treat one another with grace. Grow in how you experience grace. And if you are feeling hateful and judgmental and critical, and you're more like a Jonah wanting to catch than to help, you're probably in trouble right now. And the Spirit needs to do something in us. See, Peter's saying when you see all of this, you will love urgently and you will live differently. By the way, I love this because it's actually a, a paraphrase of our mission. We're to be radically loving. You want to know what radical love is? It's loving urgently. It's loving people different than us and loving people with a passion and relentless pursuit than us. That's urgent love. You want to know what living differently is? It's growing together in Christ. And make no mistake, you realize that if we're to be the church, we will grow together with people that don't think like we do. Okay, I'm, I'm trusting the quiet is, yeah, that's true, I gotta deal with this. Not, it's almost lunchtime, or please shut up. Because I'm telling you, I think this is really important and really profound. What's happened in the church so much, and particularly in North America, is we segment by different things we believe that are apart from Scripture and say, oh, I need Scripture and I need this. And we're doing this generationally. It's even getting worse. The only way it'll change is if we live differently, if we grow together in Christ. Now, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to celebrate communion, the beautiful place that we're reminded that at a table are of an infinite value, all are deeply loved. And maturing in Christ is not just our own holiness factor. It's learning from each other. It's letting go of the things that are not of him. And it's loving each other even in our differences. So let me pray for us and then we'll prepare for communion. Lord, I ask, uh, even as we've had this time together, as I know the conviction I feel in my own life of God, I really easily can be like Jonah and want more to catch people than to help them. I can easily look at people different than me and say, that's not right. That's not right. Lord, we are asking that, first of all, we would have a deeper understanding of your love and grace, and it would inform how we give love and grace to others. I pray that we will understand eternity in a new way, and we will love urgently. I pray not only that we would understand that, but also, God, that we would see your call to living a new way and a different way, a way that extracts culture, a way that extracts things that aren't of you in a way that causes us to love and live in relationship with each other in a way that everyone else sees you instead of how we're different and what we're frustrated about. Get Jonah out of us in that way and put Jesus in us. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.